Our text for this morning is Proverbs chapter 17, verse 1. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 1 says, Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. Better is a dry morsel, and the idea there being a day-old piece of bread, with quiet than a house full of feasting and strife. Now, this verse can be applied at a variety of levels, but probably the most direct level, and the one that I'm going with today, is to talk about how this applies to our family meals. Uh, It sounds like a mundane topic, and I think 100 years ago, preaching a sermon entitled How to Have a Family Meal would have been similar to preaching a sermon today entitled How to Brush Your Teeth. Like, it would have just seemed to be overly obvious and uh, mundane. I don't think we're there right now. I think that this topic of how to have a family meal is a useful one, and it's an important one. Now, I I really hope, for instance, if you're an empty nester or you're single or you have older teenagers, I hope that at the very least, once once a week, rather, preferably on Sunday, if I had my way, you would gather with other believers and you would partake in some kind of meal really oriented around fellowship. And if you have little kids, I really hope that you're doing a family meal almost every night. And I hope that you're turning off the phones and the TV and that you're sitting together and engaging in conversation. Um, This week I read uh, several chapters from a book written by a man who is both a pastor, church planter, and also a classically trained French chef. And uh, as I read this book, you know, reading these books make me feel just like I've accomplished nothing with my life, by the way. But as I read the book, I realized, oh my goodness, I think the French have at least one thing right. <laughs> it's about all I've found, but this, this approach to eating and this approach to fellowship seems to be more biblical than the way that you and I, perhaps, have experienced. We know the French know their way around a kitchen. Even some of their rats can cook. I think we all knew that to begin with, but I think what we did not know is the way that they eat together and their emphasis on slow, deliberate times around the table. He writes in the book, sitting down together for meals at the same time each day as a regular way of life not only brings peace and stability to a family, It also provides a built-in venue for everyone in which communication can occur. Tensions and miscommunication don't have time to build up. You don't have to call everyone into the living room to say, okay, family time, look me in the eyes, we're going to communicate. Instead, time together as a family happens naturally every day around the table. You're in a pleasant setting, doing something enjoyable, who doesn't like to eat, and you talk. Each one finds out about the other's day. Family events and opinions and thoughts and issues and news are discussed around the table. Communication happens naturally over meals as each member puts other occupations aside to participate in this fixture of the day, this reliable ritual. Uh, It's hard to overstate how important reliability is to a child, for instance. 
It's hard to overstate how much they build their lives upon a ritual that happens every night at the end of the day. So do it for the kids, man. There actually have been a number of studies that show, um, if not causation, at least correlation, with all sorts of positive metrics and families that have regular dinner rituals. They're these are all been measured and so forth, that people that have frequent family meals, their children, their language development is more, is further down the road. I loved how I just said their language development is more <laughs> for kids that can't spell good, <laughs> read good. Um, teens who have dinner with their family seven times a week are almost 40% likely to receive A's and B's compared to less frequent meetings one and a half times more likely to have an excellent relationship with their mother, twice as likely to have an excellent relationship with their father, twice as likely to have an excellent relationship with their siblings. Um, the majority of teens surveyed who do mealtime said they like it and look forward to it, and these are some teenager-specific statistics. 71% of teenagers in one survey said they consider taking time to catch up and spend time with their family members to be the best part of their dinners. Now these are the same teenagers who will sit there and look like they are bored or angry and will give one word responses. But what's really going on is they're actually grateful for this time. Uh, kids who spend a considerable amount of their dinners eating with their family are 35% less likely to develop, to develop various eating disorders. Drug use is far less frequent among families who have frequent meals together. Basically, every possible marker of health is increased among children who have frequent family meals. Now, uh, these, these articles and these studies are all presenting this as causation. Like, the dinner is what keeps your kid off of drugs. It's like, I'm not so sure that's right. It could just be that these families have generally wiser priorities and greater self-control, for instance. But the correlation even still. So you could think of family meals maybe not as a means to fix all of your child's woes, but at least a measurement of whether you have got a handle on your home. I think that's probably a better way to think about it. Uh, again, going back to this text, this verse is going to give us all of the essential ideas that you need to have a good family meal together. So let's look at that again. Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. For the most part, like this is just super straightforward and makes a lot of sense. The one thing I would want to do is add some clarification on the word quiet there in the text. The Hebrew word for quiet is salwa, and uh, I don't think that the word quiet is the best translation it's very rare that I'll ever disagree with, with um, a Bible translation. Usually I think they, they, they do a very good job. In this case, I just honestly don't get it. The word salwa means safety and ease, not quiet, not, not, not really quiet. Several other translations actually use the word peace here, which I think makes a lot more sense. Well, another reason why I'm kind of surprised that this is an issue is that it's very obvious given the construction of a Hebrew proverb and contrasting with parallel, it's very obvious that whatever 
is the opposite of strife is what we're looking for here. And I would not say that quiet is the exact opposite of strife. I would say that peace is the opposite of strife. So let, I, I would like you to think more of peace. Another, uh, other synonyms would be ease, comfort. This could help you. The only other time this Hebrew word is used in the book of Proverbs, it's, it, it's used for complacency. And you think, well, complacency is a bad thing. Well, maybe not at dinner time. Not, not a kind of contentment and complacency blur. Uh, the word is usually negative, but dinner time is a time for holy complacency, is what I would argue. It is an end of striving. It is a ritual to kiss the end of the day and say, we have arrived at the conclusion. Now let us thank God. Um, it's a time to let your hair down, if that makes sense. Oxford Dictionary defines that phrase as to behave in an uninhibited or relaxed way. I think we're getting closer to what Selwa is when we're going into this level of detail. Another author describes her family meals, and I think she hits this Selwa idea. She says, I love the simple ritual of grace before meals preceded and followed by a slow, long, intentional breath that releases the day's distractions and allows us to relax into the simple pleasures of gathering and eating. It seems a little like lighting a candle whose light changes the whole room. So that's what we're looking for. We're looking for something along the lines of all of the different synonyms I used, peace, comfort, ease, security, maybe even a touch of complacency, letting your hair down, just being done with the difficulties of the day. And our text says that that's what makes a meal, not the food, right? That's what it's saying. Because let's be clear, a dry morsel of day-old bread is not anyone's preferred dinner. What they're saying is, by, by using sort of hyperbole, is it would be better to eat almost nothing and have this selwa, to have this ease, this comfort, this peace at the table than to have all of the possible um, dainties that we might desire. The idea is that we gather around the table after another day of the world doing its work on us. And we sit around the table and then we basically pass the same simple truth back and forth through different stories. And that simple truth comes from the Psalms and that is the Lord has done great things for us and we are filled with joy. Ecclesiastes 3.12 says, I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. So that's what we're looking for. So when the text says better is a dry morsel with sawa, with peace, safety, comfort, better is a dry morsel with those things than a house full of feasting with strife, we see it is the peace that makes the meal, not so much the food. It's the peace that makes the meal, not so much the food. And it is the presence of strife that ruins a meal. And strife, it says here, is so ruinous 
that all of the best foods you could have can't overcome the poisoning effect that strife has on dinner time. The text is saying that strife is so unacceptable. This is, I think, the best way to see this text. Strife is so unacceptable at the table that it would be better to eat almost nothing and ha- than to have a properly good meal with strife. Now, what about strife? What does strife mean? Well, it's pretty straightforward. This one's not that complicated. It just means to engage in arguments and accusations and complaints and so forth. It's even translated a few times in the book of Exodus as lawsuit. And I think you've probably been at family meals where there's a bit of legal action taking place between siblings in particular. I think we've all been at family meals where someone is whining, one kid is telling on another kid, no one seems grateful to be there, the husband keeps looking at his phone, the wife is moping over a failed dish, so on and so forth. And this is all various forms of strife. This is the way we ruin our family meals. We don't keep diligent watch against the, uh, against the insertion of strife into our family meals. It's, it's, sort of, it's sort of like there's this thing that can poison all of our food, and, it's, and we need to watch out for it because we don't want it around us. You know, this idea of strife ruining a family meal reminds me of Proverbs 11.22 that says, Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. It's like, why do I see the similarity? Well, a gold ring is beautiful, but its beauty is not enough to overcome being placed in a snotty pig's nose. The beauty is ruined by its placement in this unclean thing. Likewise, a family meal is beautiful. God has carved out significant portions of his word dedicated to commending the act of eating together, but just like the gold ring gets swallowed up by the pig's snout, so strife can basically ruin the beauty of a family meal. So now we've sort of achieved a vision of what we're going for. We are not going for food, mostly. We're going for fellowship, mostly. And you could put that in a negative way and say that we are, we are not mostly concerned about food. We're mostly concerned about anything that would um, be inserted into the moment that leads to disunity, broken fellowship, and so on and so forth. This is, this is what makes a family meal a family meal. This is what makes it good. It isn't the food, it's the fellowship. So I want to give you four kind of angles of approach to developing a quality, hopefully daily ritual of family meals. And there's four four ideas, and they all start with P, because I'm a really good preacher. Uh, The four P's are preparation, prayer, protection, and pleasantries. Preparation, prayer, protection, and pleasantries. Let's talk about preparation. To get a family meal that is characterized by peace and ease and the absence of strife, the preparation of food needs to take a back seat to the preparation of hearts. 
This is essential. Sometimes I think the cook has this has an advantage here, and sometimes I think the cook has a disadvantage here. It kind of depends on what kind of cook you are. If you're a happy cook, you get time while you're preparing the meal to prepare your heart. And these two things are not really in contention or contesting one another. You get time to prepare your heart as you prepare your meal. And so if you're that kind of cook, you have an advantage over everyone else. If you're not that kind of cook, and it's really hard for you to do this thing with joy, let alone to do this while also praying and thinking about other things, like you just, your skill level's not there. This text amongst many possible applications would simply be this, you know, don't outdrive your headlights, like know your level. One of the things that's going to happen at a family meal that's unique as say compared to a restaurant is the person who's cooking the food is going to wind up sitting at the table. If I'm at a restaurant, I don't care if the chef wants to go all Gordon Ramsay and throw things and get super angsty and so on and so forth. He's not going to eat with me. That is not the case for most of our family meals. What has to happen at a family meal is, is the person that's cooking the food then has to uh, come and sit at the table. And so to you who are preparing the food, I would say the most important thing you will bring to that table is your heart. And this is, I think you could say that statement in every context you could ever be in, whether it be work, church, any job you have to do. The most important thing you always bring to the table is your heart. You've got to get that right. And so while it's really easy and sometimes preferable to do a lot of extra work to make sure that the meal is prepared, we really want everyone, before they come to the meal, to prepare their hearts. Generally speaking, the more you have your meals planned out, the more likely you will be able to arrive at that table in peace. And the more you are scrambling and figuring things out and on the bleeding edge of your abilities, like let's be honest, like maybe you're mostly a hamburger type cook and you decide to go over here into the world of souffles or something, well, as a husband, if I hear that, I'm thinking, oh, well, that'll be fun. You know, you're going to arrive. The thing may or may not work. And uh, more than that, you'll just be tapped out. You'll, you'll have spent all of your emotional and spiritual energy on living on the bleeding edge of your cooking abilities instead of just, like, being at peace and sitting down and being happy. Beyond the cook, every single member of the family needs to basically come to the table at peace with God, at peace. And in order for you to be prepared to go to the table, you really could use a glance at or a thought toward Galatians 5.16. So if you have your Bibles, if you turn there, Galatians 5.16 tells us the following. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, Jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. 
I warn you, and I, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against these things there is no law. Strife's on the list of things that happen when someone is walking in the, spirit, in the flesh. And so what you need to do is you want to approach a table in order to engage in this selwa, in order to engage in this safe, gentle, happy peace, is you want to make sure that you're not walking up to that table in the flesh. But rather you are walking up to that table in the spirit. Because if you walk up to that table in the spirit, then what you're going to be bringing to the table is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And if I was struggling before for a definition of what exactly Selwa is, I think I just found it here. And this is the beautiful thing about experiencing this, and not just experiencing this, but winding up by God's grace, repeating it regularly over time. Your children grow up eating whatever, Pop-Tarts, whatever. Name the worst trash food you can think of. Whatever, whatever's for dinner that night, whatever. What they're really eating is they're walking through the orchard of the Holy Spirit himself. And they are dining day in and day out on love and joy and peace and patience and kindness. And they will taste and see that the Lord is good. So come to the table prepared. The next thing is just pray. Now, I think I advise that, you know, if you've got young kids, you let them learn to pray and so on and so forth. But just so you know, there can be a tendency amongst the pleasers to do what Pharisees do. <laughs> and so sometimes it's warranted to ask your kids to pray. And sometimes you might think, well, maybe, maybe now is not the time to give so-and-so another chance to pray on the street corner uh, with the sounding of trumpets and so on and so forth. Your results may vary, is my point, and use discretion. One of the most beautiful things about this habit, this ritual, is that people over the years have written prayers, little cute rhymy prayers that you can say that are fun and they're true and they're full of theological meaning. The most famous one you probably know, God is great, God is good. Let us thank him for our food. Then the next line in that one goes, by his hands we all are fed. You gave us, Lord, this daily bread. That's sweet. It's, it's got everything you need. There's even a prayer explicitly for when you're eating mac and cheese. Boil the water, add the noodles. Mac and cheese, we love you oodles. In gratefulness for this creation, we bow and eat with celebration. And there's an old Norwegian prayer that I really like. In Jesus' name, to the table we go, to eat and drink according to his word, to God the honor, to us the gain, so we have food in Jesus' name. But you can Google these and you can find lots of them, and I didn't find any really heretical ones, so you should be okay. But you want to prepare your heart to go to that table at peace with God, experiencing what you're hoping everyone will experience. And then you want to arrive at that table, and when you're all seated, you want to pray. It doesn't have to be complicated. But there's a third element 
that is necessary in order for a people to experience this comfort and ease and security. Here's a simple truth, and I know many of you in law enforcement will completely agree. Whenever you find an environment where there is comfort and safety and ease, someone's doing work to make sure that environment exists. You may not think about that, but the places where you feel the most safe are actually a consequence of someone keeping the peace. Whenever you find, this is true of churches and families, whenever you find an easy, free-flowing fellowship of people who feel safe and act unguarded, you can be sure that someone is standing watch. Whenever the sheep are free to let their wool down, you can be sure that there's a shepherd somewhere watching. And that shepherd is the head of the household. It is your job, head of the household, to be an under-shepherd of the great shepherd who protects his sheep from strife. A safe and peaceable table must be governed. It must be. It will not happen by accident. It will not simply emerge out of people's natural goodness because that's not a thing. You can't have selwa or, or shalom or any of the peace words without a human shepherd who is in the spirit operating as a protector. Now, the main goal for someone who is guarding the table, so to speak, is to keep strife from appearing. Make sense? That's the main goal. The main goal of your table guarding is to keep strife from appearing. And the first person the guard must always guard is himself, right? The first person the shepherd must always shepherd is himself. The guard must guard himself. Here's, here's a challenge. I was talking to someone about this this morning. There's a real challenge, kind of a bit of a bummer about the Christian life. We don't put this one in the brochure. You know, you're given discernment and you're given wisdom and you're told this is good this is better so on and so forth and so you start to figure out like what is good and what you should pursue and what you should prioritize but one of the things that continues even after you've been saved is what I just read in Galatians 5 and that is is that we still have a flesh and the flesh does this really unfortunate thing where you will identify the target a godly target be like, this is good. I want this. I want to pursue this. And your flesh will be like, gotcha. I'll, I'll, I'll be right back with that. The flesh has this unfortunate tendency to try to seize the good you've established in your eyes by human means, by, by means of your own wisdom and your own strength and so on and so forth. And so what this looks like, men, and I'm speaking directly to you at this point, is if you leave this place and you're like, family meals are super important. We got to do this. And also, like, no one can be strifey. We are going to have some peace. Just understand that of all of the causes, there's, I think, about 15 to 20 different verses about strife in Proverbs. And of all of the causes of strife in Proverbs, it's being quick-tempered. And quick-tempered is often a, 
downstream of frustration and a sense of, we need to get this done. And you people are not cooperating with my peace. Douglas Wilson, in his book, Why Children Matter, writes this, suppose a child is guilty of bad manners at the table and his father snaps at him. The child has bad manners, sure enough, and his father told him not to have those bad manners. So why does the kid still have bad manners? Because his father does. <laughs> Snapping at your children at the dinner table is much worse than playing with your potatoes with a knife. The word of God never says anything about playing with your potatoes with a knife but it does address the root sin of biting someone else's head off. It is not okay for children to play with their food, but that is because it is good manners to avoid that sort of thing. However, it is far worse to be cracking down on bad manners with uber bad manners. So your table needs a guard. Head of households, that's your job, but you gotta guard yourself. Because just as soon as you decide this is important and should happen, it, you're very likely to, to walk back into the flesh and start seizing these things with all of the unrighteous means that your flesh has to seize things. Now, in addition to guarding himself, the, the table guardian, the table shepherd, must also guard everyone else. And one thing that that means is that you have to guard some people at the table from other people at the table. The one thing we would not allow in our family was mean-spirited comments back and forth. That was an immediate ticket to Spanktown every time. It's, 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 it's disrupting the peace, and I'm keeping the peace, and so we're not going to do that. We can banter, and we don't have to even have super serious conversations and so on. We're not going to intentionally tear anyone else down. We're not gonna tattle. We're not gonna, we're not gonna try to make ourselves bigger by pushing someone else lower. So your job is to protect the peace of the table and sometimes that means dealing with someone who does not seem to be there in the interest of peace. Sometimes one person at the table simply should not be there that day. They are at least for that day not suitable for the cultivation of peace. And when that happens, I have two Proverbs to help you with. Uh, Proverbs 22.10. So we've got, a, we've got a person that should not, that just, it's, they're just not, you're there for peace and all they want is war. They're just not emotionally, maybe they haven't had a nappy. Um, they're just not emotionally going to be an agent of peace today. Well, here's Proverbs 22.10. Drive out a scoffer and the strife will go out. Drive out a scoffer and the strife will go out. Sometimes the answer is you are not going to be at the family table today. You can try this again tomorrow. Another proverb that could help is five verses down from Proverbs 22.10, Proverbs 22.15. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Just saying. So that's protection. Now what about this next one, pacing? Well, in addition to a shepherd protecting his house, his table, he should also provide one key ingredient, time. Listen, if you want to understand 
how love works. Here's, here's a power sentence for you. Speed is the, is the enemy of intimacy. Speed is the enemy of intimacy. When you are in a rush, you are not capable of loving someone like you should. And so one of the ways that we would deal with this issue is our, we just can't be in a hurry. We just, we just, it would just be better to, if we could, just consistently make sure we're not in a hurry. The thing about friendship, and this includes like becoming, and there's a godly answer, there's a godly way to be your, your child's friends, uh, to be your spouse's friend. The thing about friendship is, is that it's quality time that is buried in a big pile of quantity time. Meaning quality time is the needle buried in the haystack of quantity time. You can't just decide to have quality time. You have to throw tons of time at the situation to wind up with some quality time. And so this is good because this will help you to think that like, okay, I don't have to have every one of these dinners mean everything. I just need to keep putting in the reps day after day after day. But it also means that the dinners themselves need to have some room to breathe. Now, this can be a real problem for younger kids who haven't been trained to sit still. If you have done family meals diligently from the very beginning, there's a pretty good chance, by the beginning I mean their birth, there's a pretty good chance that they can sit still for a pretty significant period of time. It's routine for children in other cultures, even cultures in America, to sit still at a dinner table for two hours, three hours, and participate. Um, and, and, and in France, you'll just walk around and find people, children, very young, sitting still at dinner for a very long time. Now, I am confident to tell you that that is not because the French are especially good at discipline. They just do it every day, over and over and over again, and the child adapts. Listen, I want to be super clear about something and not in a judgmental way. God is going to teach you as you walk with him that there are certain blessings you don't get until you sit still. And you will have to learn as an adult to sit still long enough to read his word, long enough to listen, long enough to pray. There are certain things God's just like, we're going to learn how to sit still now. And his intention is always a blessing. It will be very difficult for your child to experience many blessings in life, many practical blessings in life, until they can learn to sit still. That's just, that's just a part of the situation we're in. That's just the nature of reality. So one of the kindnesses you can give to them is to teach them how to sit still. Now, if you haven't done that, then this proverb is very helpful to you because it tells you very clearly that it would be, so we've got dry morsel feast, right? We can change this and we can just say, it would be better to have a 20-minute meal after which the kids are excused than a 60-minute meal full of wrestling and strife. Right? So where you would start if you haven't been doing this is you would say, what's the minimum viable product I can get right now? Is it 15 minutes? Is it 20 minutes? Whatever. I'm going to get that. 
And then next week we add five, or next month, we, next week, next month, we add five minutes and so on and so forth. I can assure you that not only will that just be good for them in multiple areas, but it will be transformative as you week after week after week learn to kiss each day goodbye, to turn the page on another day by spending an unhurried amount of time without your phones on, enjoying one another. The last thing is pleasantries or pleasant conversations. We asked our kids this week, hey, uh, why did you stick around the table for our longish dinners? Because, you know, we would have people over and we would just be there forever and they would, they would hang a pretty long time. Um, our kids were sitting still in church even by the time they were three. We didn't have childcare in our church, so they were just sitting there. I think about two, actually. And we asked them, why, why is this? Like, why did you do that? And they said two things. One, it was obviously a really big deal to everyone that this was, and we didn't want to be disruptive of the big deal. We feared the consequences of being disruptive of a big deal. But the other thing they said is, um, they almost always felt like they were part of the conversation and had something to add. And so this is, this is another thing we must cultivate at family meals. Is we must cultivate this sort of conversational quality where people are free and, and, and secure and safe and free of taunting and teasing and mocking and so forth. Where people can say, the little kids can say, this is what I was thinking today or this is what I did today and so on and so forth. And there's a wide berth given to... Uh, things that don't make a ton of sense, and so on and so forth. We're engaged in, in, intentionally engaged in a pleasant conversation. You know, the day is coming, if you have kids, where the majority of your relationship with your kids, time-wise, will be when they're adults. Um, the, the period of time when they're not is just passes very quickly. Not quickly enough for some of you, I know, but it passes very quickly. And what you're left with after years and years and years of dinners together is this culture of friendship that is at ease with one another and feels safe and welcomed and interested in returning over and over and over again to the family table. At some point, if you will do this, it will move from a got to to a get to. And people will be willing participants in this. And that's really when the peace blossoms and so forth. Augustine looks back fondly at the way his, his own table life developed. He says, friendships have joys that captivate my heart. The charms of talking and laughing together and kindly giving way to each other's wishes. Reading elegant, elegantly written books together, sharing jokes and delighting to honor one another. If we disagree with each other occasionally, it is without malice, as a person might disagree with himself. And the rare occasion of dispute lends spice to our season. Uh, spice to season are much more frequent accord. We teach and learn from each other, sadly missing any who are absent and gladly welcoming them when they come home. Such signs of friendship spring from the hearts of friends who love and know they are loved in return. Signs to be read in smiles and words and glances and a thousand gracious gestures. These are sparks that kindle a blaze to melt our hearts. 
and fuse them inseparably into one. And that's what's downstream of this practice. That's what's years downstream from this practice where a group of people have come frequently prepared, seeing the preparation of their own hearts as the most important thing that comes to that table. A group of people who have been protected, protected by a shepherd who is watching and making sure that everything is done in a way where everyone feels safe and welcome. A, a table that is gathered around frequently with celebrating and thanking God for what he did, not only today, but what he's been doing and what he's going to do. What is downstream of that is what Augustine is describing here. A thing that melts hearts over time. So as we pivot into communion, you'll find it interesting, I think, that the passage in 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul really gets on the case of the Corinthians, what they're doing wrong is exactly, maps on exactly to what we see in Proverbs 17.1. He says in 1 Corinthians 11.17, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and I believe in part, believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, one goes ahead with his own meal, one goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? And I, I want to pause there and and, and shout up at Paul, do you really think they did anything different in their own homes? Like, they didn't. This is how these people ate. They were transporting their approach to food from home into this context. He's like, do you have houses need to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. What they should have been doing, and I found another passage that explains Selwa, is what we see the first Christians doing in Acts 2, 46. Do you know that one? And day after day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. That's what we're looking for. Day after day, receiving our food with glad and generous hearts. When the first Christians received peace with God through the work of Jesus Christ, the first place that peace was displayed was at their dinner table. You get that? When the strife between, when the enmity between them and God had ended thanks to Christ's offering of his own righteousness on their behalf, the place it showed up, Acts 2.46, was at the dinner table where all striving had ceased and peace reigned. So I hope you're looking forward to having many meals in your homes and in other people's homes that are defined by peace and free of strife. But we must understand that this meal that's set before us this morning is what makes those meals possible. Well, it represents what makes those meals possible. This table, which celebrates Jesus, bringing an end to all of our self-righteousness, freeing us from the power of the flesh, giving us the Holy Spirit, who gives us love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, 
This table is the beginning of all of the future suppers I hope you'll have in your lifetime. All of the future peaceful suppers that I hope you'll have in your lifetime. 1 Corinthians 17.23 from, from Paul. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let me pray. Gracious God, we are so grateful that you love us so much that you would give us amazing food, amazing places to eat the food. You would build our bodies to enjoy it and be nourished by it. And you've embedded in this act of eating a very idea of fellowship. And so, God, we pray, we just, we just give this thing up to you again. And we ask that you would make the most of it for our sake, for our goodness, for our good and your glory. Would you, would you return just even the act of eating, Lord, to its proper place in our lives? Would what you intend for it to be, be what it is to us? Will, will you make what, what eating is in heaven, uh, what is now on earth? And Lord, we pray that we would start by participating in this table with glad and generous hearts as we recognize the one who died for us to make us right with you so that we can call the God of the universe Father. So we pray, God, for faith as we participate in this table. And we pray, God, that you would make this faith echo into our lives this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.